you to take a copy of the scriptures and stand with me. So we turn to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. As we are turning there, let us come before the Lord once again in prayer, asking for his aid and his blessing upon the reading and preaching of his word. O Lord God Almighty, as we now come and take up thy word, Lord, we ask that the same spirit which did inspire preserve and give this word to us, thy people, thy church. That same spirit would also now illuminate our hearts, O God. Illuminate the scriptures to us, O Lord, that we would understand them. Grant us faith through them, a deeper love for Christ, a hunger and thirst for true righteousness, O God. Lord God, keep us from error and help us to be obedient to the truth of thy word and not to man's word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. Our Lord Jesus Christ says the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Dear congregation, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. been a little bit of time since we have been in the Beatitudes together, so I will just begin by giving us a brief recap of the Beatitudes and what they are. As we had said at the beginning of our series on the Beatitudes, this word blessed is not the first time we see it, is not in the Beatitudes, but it's throughout the Scripture. We want to understand Scripture words the way Scripture uses them. So what does it mean, blessed, here? Well, we actually go all the way back to the first book of the Bible to help us understand this. Uh, You recall, God spoke creational blessings over the first creation. Over the animals, in Genesis 1.22, he said, uh, we read, God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And he also spoke creational blessings over man. In verse 28 of Genesis chapter 1, we read, God blessed them, he blessed man, and and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And we had said that Jesus is the Lord of a new creation. And here he is, like Moses, some of the parallels that Pastor Joel brought out this morning. He goes up on the mount to to give his people, his, his new creation, the new Israel laws. Just like Moses went up on the mount receiving the law from God, so Jesus now goes up on a mount giving the law to his people. And Jesus, as Lord over a new creation, speaks blessings over his new creatures. And he blesses them to be and flourish as the new creatures, new creations that they are in him. The Beatitudes, we said, tell Christians who they are in the Lord Jesus Christ. By the Beatitudes, we should be thinking, this is who we are. Are. This is who God has created us to be in Christ. And through these blessings, he's equipping us to be exactly that. The Beatitudes tells Christians who they are in him. Their blessing rests on being 
in Christ. Our blessings aren't just things that we have. I'm so blessed because I have a new plasma screen, or I have the home I wanted, or I have the stuff I wanted. No, no. Being blessed means being in Christ. It means being equipped to be who you are in Jesus Christ, being members of his body, the church. Just as God's blessings equip the creatures of the first creation to be and do all that they were created to be and do, so too by these blessings, these beatitude blessings, Christ equips his new creatures to be who they truly are in union with himself. Jesus' disciples, Christians, abound with all the blessed fruits that come with union with Jesus Christ, being in Jesus Christ. Some of those that we've looked at have been dependence upon the Lord, poverty of spirit, faithful mourning over sin, patient waiting upon his kingdom, longing for his righteousness to rule and to reign, single-mindedness of heart and life upon God, the bringing of peace and with their Lord persecution by the wicked for all of these things. Their flourishing and blessing is based on Christ's promise and Christ's ability to bring it to pass. We are who we are as Christians because Christ has made us so. Because of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore, this is who we are, just as with the first creation. Now we come to the fourth beatitude tonight. And I think it's important to note briefly the place of this fourth beatitude. I think we had said in earlier lessons, you could kind of divide up the beatitudes, if you wanted, these eight beatitudes, into beatitudes of need and also into beatitudes of action. And here we have the fourth beatitude at the center. So when we look at the, the, the structure of the beatitudes, in the center of the beatitudes is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. In other words, as we're reading this, we should immediately be thinking, this is central. This is central to what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a disciple of Christ. It means centrally hungering and thirsting for righteousness. The Beatitudes, John Stott uh, commented, have a spiritual progression of relentless logic, he says. A spiritual progression of relentless logic. Each beatitude leads to the next, and it presupposes and builds upon the one that came before it. The first four beatitudes show the Christian's utter dependence upon God. And then the next four show Christ, our, our Christ-enabled attitude toward our fellow man, similar to the two tables of the Ten Commandments, our attitude towards God and then our attitude towards man, our, our neighbor, our fellow man. It's good that we confess and lament our sin, which we see in the first two Beatitudes. That we acknowledge the truth about ourselves to both God and men, as John Stott says. But what good is it if we leave it there, he points out. Confession of sin must lead to hunger for righteousness, says John Stott. Confession for sin must lead to hunger for righteousness. 
If, if it's not leading to a hunger for righteousness, then we're just sorry that we got caught. We're just sorry that we're being punished for our sins. We're not truly mourning over our sins. True, heartfelt confession of, of sin must and does in the Christian lead to hunger for righteousness. This is who the Christian is. The Christian doesn't mourn sin for its own sake or for its consequences. Rather, the Christian mourns sin because he loves righteousness. And he longs for God's righteousness to permeate all things. His, his mind, his heart, his actions, his family, his church, his nation, all things. Central to being united to Christ is loving righteousness. This is why it's at the center of the Beatitudes. Confessing and mourning spiritual poverty must be founded upon a love for God's righteousness. And then flowing out of this righteousness and this love for righteousness is a new attitude toward our neighbor, showing mercy and making peace, which we'll look at in the coming weeks. I think a common temptation in conservative circles is being known for what we are against, being known for what we are against, when we should be known more by what we are for than merely what we are against. That's having righteousness at the center. We are against abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, feminism, because we love God's righteousness, because we love God's law. We love mercy, peace, and justice, and truth. That's why we are against these things. We're not just being reactionary. I, I've had a, a couple people in the past few years of pastoral ministry, both at Agros Reformed Baptist Church and also here, ask me, you know, why, why does your church pray so much against all these things? I feel like I hear from the pulpit prayers, there's a lot of prayers against things. And I said, we pray about those things because we love God's word. We love righteousness, and therefore we love people. And that's why we also are praying for God to come and his spirit worked revival in this nation, in the hearts of people, and the gospel to work through and permeate all things. But we want to make sure that while we are against evil, it's because we love righteousness. Our social, ethical, political, and cultural concerns must be tethered to the central pillar of righteousness that is central to the life of the Christian. This is what it means to be a Christian. At the heart of it all is a true, lasting, and pervasive love for righteousness. It's no accident, it's no coincidence that the center of Christ's new creation blessings is a hunger for righteousness. It's definitional of true Christianity. As is so often the case, we see these words here, hunger and thirst, as is so often the case, Jesus is using earthy, earthy language to describe spiritual realities. Well, why is that? Well, it's because Jesus and the Bible does not make the same sharp distinction between physical and spiritual that moderns do. And here he uses visceral terms, hunger and thirst. This is something that 
all people are familiar with. All people have experienced hunger and thirst. Matthew Henry says, quote, hunger and thirst are appetites that return frequently and call for fresh satisfactions, end quote. I have sometimes wished that I could take a once-a-week pill and not have to eat for the rest of the week. But then I remember how much I enjoy eating, what a gift eating is, what a gift feasting with my family and with brothers and sisters in Christ is, and I quickly give up that hope. But just for the sake of time, sometimes I wish I could not have to eat for an entire week. But no matter how many times we eat a meal as human beings, we are hungry again within a few hours, aren't we? The need for food. The need for drink is constantly with us. Hunger and thirst returns to us pervasively, time and time again, as long as we live. It's constant, in other words. And that's part of the idea here with, this, with these words. The Christian has a continuous longing for righteousness. As long as sin remains in himself, and in the world around him, he longs for God's righteousness to reign and to rule. In fact, Jesus says that the key to not worrying about physical needs of the body is to instead concern oneself first and foremost with the, righteous, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things shall be added to us. Uh, chapter 6, verse 33. Even when the Christian has made some progress in sanctification, even when pardon has been received, grace received in the, in the means of grace that God has given us, has given us his church, progress has been made in the world towards biblical justice. Still, as long as the Christian remains on this side of the already but not yet that Pastor Joel has been taking us through the past few months, the Christian longs for fresh supplies of grace, continual supplies of grace and righteousness. Moreover, by hunger and thirst, we should not only have the idea of continuousness or constancy in mind, but also of intensity, earnestness, and importance. The kind of hunger and thirst here being described is not that which we sometimes feel uh, when we haven't eaten anything since breakfast. Rather, it is the kind of hunger and thirst felt by those who, who live in poverty, and poverty that is caused by oppression, unjust and wicked oppression. The hunger of a, a mother who hasn't eaten since she divided up her last piece of bread with her, her five children three days ago. That kind of hunger. The, this is, the hunger being described here is not, yeah, I could probably eat. Could you eat, Jim? Let's go get a bite. That's not what's being described. Rather, it's the kind of hunger that says, if I do not eat something soon, I shall die. I will perish. However, I'm unable to provide for myself. I can't get food. I'm going to die if I don't eat soon, but I'm unable to obtain anything to eat. It's the hunger and thirst of those who are oppressed, who earnestly long for deliverance and cry out day and night for relief, kind of like what we covered in our, in our lesson on mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. This is how the Christian must long for righteousness. He longs for righteousness earnestly, out of a deep need for deliverance from sin and unrighteousness. And yes, we understand these visceral and earthly 
descriptors when applied to food and drink, but what do they mean when the direct object is righteousness? What does it mean for one to hunger and to thirst for righteousness? Well, to better understand this beatitude and answer that question, we'll look at it from three perspectives. To understand what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness, we must first recognize that such verbiage is not unique to the Beatitudes. Hungering and thirsting for God, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, this isn't the first time that it shows up in your Bible. While David was hiding in the wilderness of Judah from King Saul, he cried out to God saying, and we read this in Psalm 63 verse 1, My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. In Psalm 42, the sons of Korah cry out. In verse 1, they thirst for God, for the living God. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Hebrew Bible, God's people are described as hungering and thirsting for God and, and for his righteousness time and time again. But to understand what this means, even, we have to ask, what is meant by righteousness? What does righteousness mean here? What is it that God's people, throughout both Testaments, are thirsting and hungering for? It's helpful to remember who this beatitude was spoken to, which we've covered in earlier lessons. The believing Jews of Christ's day. That's who he's speaking to. He's speaking to his disciples, his Jewish disciples. And the Jews lived in the land. They're in the promised land, but they're living as slaves. They're living under pagan, wicked, Roman rule, oppression. These believing Jews, Jesus calls blessed. Why? Because they're the ones that are mourning for the sinfulness of the land the sinfulness of their own hearts, the sinfulness of their fellow Jews, and, and the sinful, wicked oppression that's being put upon them by their pagan Roman oppressors and occupiers. They hungered and thirsted for, God, for, for God's righteousness to reign and rule once again in the land. Sinclair Ferguson defined righteousness like this in this context as, quote, the situation in which things are what they ought to be, end quote. The situation in which things are what they ought to be. In other words, when God's people are faithful to God's covenant as God is faithful to it, when sin is mourned, when sin is hated, when sin is judged, when sin is forsaken and repented of, and when faithfulness to God is rendered in obedience to his law, and peace, mercy, and justice are delighted in and upheld in the land. That's righteousness in this context, according to Sinclair Ferguson. I think he's spot on. When God's people hunger and thirst for God and his righteousness, they are hungering for God to set things right side up. As we said, the Beatitudes seem upside down to us, and that's because Christ is setting everything right side up. We live in the upside down world now. He's setting everything the way it should be, right side up. He's coming to judge sin and deliver his people from all unrighteousness. And in Scripture, and I'm, I'm pretty sure Pastor Joel touched on this quite a bit on Wednesday night's lesson, in Scripture there is a close connection between God's righteousness 
and his acts of judgment. A close relationship between God's righteousness and his acts of judgment. And often, his righteousness is displayed, is manifested, is proven, is seen in his acts of judgment. Take, for instance, Psalm 50, verse 6. Let the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. God's righteousness is revealed by judging the wicked and disobedient. Jerusalem cries out after the Babylonian destruction of the city and temple and the exiles. In Lamentations, uh, Lamentations verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 18, and Jerusalem says this, The Lord is righteous. What's the example that Jerusalem's going to use? Well, here's the proof that he's righteous. For I rebelled against his commandment. Hear now, all peoples, and behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. That's the proof that God is righteous. He judged Jerusalem for her faithlessness, for her wickedness. Specifically, or more specifically, I should say, or more especially, God's righteousness is displayed in his acts of salvation and deliverance in which he vindicates his people, he justifies his people, he judges his people, and he judges their enemies. The Exodus is an obvious example that Scripture uses time and time again, where God's righteous acts were displayed by destroying Egypt, destroying her economy, destroying her army, destroying her king, destroying all of her gods and her religion, and then saving Israel. That was, according to 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7, that was a, those were the righteous acts of Yahweh. In Psalm 9, the Lord, who has prepared his throne for judgment and shall judge the world in righteousness, is called a refuge for the oppressed in times of trouble. In Isaiah, God warns the stubborn-hearted who are far from righteousness, promising to bring his righteousness near. Well, what's going to happen when he brings his righteousness near? Well, he's going to destroy them and bring salvation to Israel and Zion. We see this in Isaiah chapter 46, verses 11 to 13. God's righteousness, in other words, his coming in righteousness, his coming to judge in righteousness, is a curse for the wicked and unbelieving, but a blessing to the faithful and believing. God's righteous judge, righteousness judges his people's oppressors. And it also judges his people. And when it judges his people, it's a blessing. In Revelation chapter 16, we see an interesting example of this as well, verses 5 through 7. The angel of the water cries out when the third angel pours out the third bowl upon the persecutors of God's people. And the angel of the water says this, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was, and who is to be. What's the evidence that he's righteous? The angel says, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. When God, in his righteousness, judges his enemies, it destroys them. When God, in his righteousness, judges his people, it saves, delivers, and vindicates them. Deuteronomy 32, verse 36. 
Yahweh will judge his people and have compassion on his servants. God's judgment of his people, his coming in righteousness upon his people, is his compassion upon them. When God comes in righteousness, judging his people and their enemies, the Bible describes it also as, you guessed it, God satisfying the hunger and thirst of his people. As David sings of the Lord's deliverance of him, from the hands of Achish, king of Gath, he says this in Psalm 34, verses 8 through 10. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. In restoring Judah from exile, God says this in Jeremiah 31, 25, I have satiated, that means satisfied or filled, the weary soul, and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. When God comes in righteous judgment, judging his people and their enemies, he satisfies the hunger and the thirst of his people. His people are hungering and thirsting for righteousness until God comes in righteous judgment. And then the longings of his people are satisfied. To bring this back to the Beatitude, this is the experience of the believing Jews gathered before Jesus. This is their experience. They are suffering under a sinful, pagan, oppressive, imperial force, the Roman Empire. And they're hungering and thirsting for God's righteous judgment. And there there are many faithless Jews among them as well, who, who are just fine with their Roman occupiers, as long as they get their cut. They're longing for God to come in righteous judgment and deliver them, to restore righteousness to the land. Jesus says they are blessed. Why? Because they shall be filled. God's righteous judgment has come as as he stands before them. It has come. In the person of Jesus Christ himself, the longing for righteousness, which they felt, is satisfied in the first advent of the only begotten Son of God, the God-man, the Lord Jesus, who is the Christ. This can be seen in the Virgin Mary's song, the Magnificat. In Luke 1, verse 47, and then 51 through 53, when she is singing her song after she visits with her uh, her cousin Elizabeth, and the, the babe Christ is in her womb, she says this, My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. It's amazing. Jesus promises his disciples that their hunger and their thirst will be filled, will be satisfied. And what happens? Within 40 years, the unbelieving Jewish system, with all of its superstition, with all of its hypocrisy, with all of its wickedness, would be overthrown in Jerusalem's destruction in 70 AD. Within 400 years, Rome would no longer be known as the center 
of the wicked, pagan, imperial oppressors of Israel, but as one of the most important churches in Christendom. The virgin's song, in other words, would be fulfilled. The proud scattered, the mighty cast down from their thrones, and the lowly exalted, even to the place of co-heirs with Christ, the hungry being filled. The longings of God's people for righteousness are satisfied in the coming of Jesus Christ. Many die in hunger and thirst today with absolutely no hope. But the Christian, for you and I, for the church, the Christian's longing is not like that at all. Our longing, our hungering, our thirsting is a blessed one, for it shall be satisfied. We'll come back to that in a moment. Now, what we just covered is the kind of biblical, redemptive, historical context, but there's also a personal application. The believing Jews of Jesus' time were blessed in their longing as a corporate body, but they're a corporate body made up of individuals who are all longing for righteousness, who are all hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It's impossible, as some have said, and probably even tested and experienced, it's impossible to make a good omelet with rotten eggs. To have a good omelet, you need good eggs, right? So yes, while Jesus is declaring the body of believing Jews as blessed, and this comes out more clearly in the Greek or in the King James Bible, blessed are ye, this is plural, blessed are ye, this body is made up of individuals, each hungering and thirsting, for righteousness. Now, I think this aspect is easier for us to understand. This is kind of usually how we read the Beatitudes, just kind of personal, with personal application. And it's an important part, so we're going to touch on it, but we're not going to spend a ton of time on it tonight. We do not consider hunger and thirst a blessing, usually. But here it is. Jesus says, blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why is it a blessing? Because many multitudes before us all around us today and to come, think nothing of righteousness. They don't think about righteousness at all. They don't care about righteousness. They live in sin and darkness, and they love unrighteousness. They not only do those things which God judges in righteousness, but also approve of those who practice them, as we read in Romans 1.32. They long, hunger and thirst, to fill up the measure of their sins, not to be filled with God's righteousness, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.16. They have no idea what it is to hunger and thirst. For they do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own bellies, as Paul says in Romans 16.18. So in order to feel this hunger, in order to feel this thirsting, one must first feel the weight of their own sinfulness. And this cannot be felt apart from the grace of God. One's own rebellion, one's own sinfulness and wretched condition apart from Christ, outside of Christ, can only be seen through the eyes of faith. And we know that the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that faith is the gift of God. To hunger and thirst for righteousness, in other words, is not natural to fallen sinful human beings. It is rather the peculiar blessing of the Christian. Many go through life never feeling the guilt, pain, sorrow, 
poverty or oppression of sin. They can never cry out. They don't even know what it would be like to cry out with the Apostle Paul looking at their own sin going, a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Only blessed new creations in Christ know what this is. Only they can say these words of the Apostle Paul. It was by the new creation blessing of Christ that the Apostle Paul could say in that same chapter, Romans chapter 7, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. What's happening here? Paul is hungering and thirsting for righteousness. He's longing to be freed from the body of death, longing that he would only ever practice that which he now loves by the gracious gift of God, namely righteousness, and that he would never do what he now hates, namely unrighteousness. This experience in Romans chapter 7 is true of all Christians. It's true of all Christians. They long to be delivered from their sinful tendencies, from their sinful practices, from their sinful thoughts and actions. They hunger and thirst, longing for the day of Christ Jesus, when God will complete the work, the good work that he has begun in them, as Paul says in Philippians 1, verse 6. The Christian, as William Gurnall, my favorite Puritan, says, the Christian prosecutes an irreconcilable war against his own bosom sins, he adds, his favorite sins, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 10.5. Until the believer, until the Christian receives his adoption, namely the redemption of his body, he always sees his sinfulness. How far short he has fallen of the glory of God and his own inability present even with God's grace in him. Thus the Christian is evermore crying out, Lord be merciful to me the sinner and Lord I believe help thou my unbelief. He always hungers and thirsts for righteousness since every grace of God that has begun in him is also sitting side by side with sin in his own life. The Christian is blessed that he feels this longing. We are blessed that we feel it. Many do not. That he lives in this tension. That he is a soldier in this war against his own sin. But the Christian is also blessed because of the promise of Christ, which is what strengthens us in this battle, isn't it? His longing, the Christian's longing, our longing to be freed from sin, to have righteousness, to hunger and thirst for righteousness is not pointless. It's not empty. We hunger and thirst for righteousness, and we shall be filled. We shall be satisfied. He, we not only cry out, O wretched man that I am, but also, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The good work begun in us shall be brought to completion. Sanctification will lead to glorification. Our adoption will be completed the day of redemption of our bodies, the resurrection, when death is no more, when sin is no more. We are raised to live 
in the new Jerusalem where nothing that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie shall by any means enter. Revelation 21, 27. Christians are blessed because their hunger and thirst shall be filled. Peter Lightheart says this, quote, We cannot delete the eschatological hope of inheritance, filling, vindication from the Beatitudes without distortion. Without the eschatological expectation, what he means by that is this, this promise that one day it shall be filled. The Beatitudes amount to a quasi-Stoic ethic, ethic of grin and bear it. Pretend you're blessed when you're not. For Jesus, blessing in the present depends entirely on the reliability of God's promises for the future, end quote. That's powerful. And that's what's happening here in the Beatitudes. That's what this promise is. The, the Beatitudes, sometimes we read them like we're just supposed to grin stupidly and walk through life taking blows to the face as if this is good. I'm blessed. Look how blessed I am. Everything in my life is falling apart. Everyone is mistreating me. Look how blessed I am. That's not where the blessing is. The blessing is in Christ. It's in union with Christ and his promise to restore all things. This is how we are blessed, that we shall be filled. Those God predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. In light of this, we don't simply grin and bear it and pretend we are blessed. We truly are blessed since if God is for us, who can be against us? Lastly, true hunger and thirst for righteousness is not individualistic. It doesn't just stay there. And the individual. The Christian not only longs for righteousness to rule in his own life, but throughout the whole of God's world. The Christian cannot say, well, as long as my sin is forgiven, as long as I'll ultimately be freed from it, as long as I'm going to heaven and I'll be in the new Jerusalem, then it doesn't really matter what happens in the world. It doesn't really matter what happens to those around me. Who cares what's going on down the street or in that person's house or in my neighbor's yard as long as my sin is forgiven? No, this is completely contrary to the new nature of the new creation in Christ Jesus. Luther, Martin Luther said that the basic problem, I don't know if I would reduce it this much, but the basic problem of fallen man is that he is incurvatus in se. He is curved in on himself. He's turned inward. He's proud and he is selfish and he cares only about himself. Well, in these new creation blessings, this incurvation, this selfishness is reversed in those who are blessed. In the sermon, Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his disciples that they are the salt of themselves. No, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. They are to serve their neighbors with good works so that they, their neighbors, may see their good works and glorify their Father in heaven. The righteousness, quote-unquote, of the scribes and Pharisees was a self-serving righteousness. The righteousness of the Christian, Jesus says, must exceed their righteousness, or they will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not enough that they bring their gift to the altar, is it? 
Jesus says that if they're bringing their gift to the altar and on the way they remember their, or they hear that their brother has something against them, their brother's offended at them, they must leave their gift there, go be reconciled to their brother first, and then come back and offer their gift. The righteousness hungered and thirsted after by Christ's disciples is displayed, is demonstrated, is proved in acts of love, charity, mercy, forgiveness, and sacrifice toward neighbor. The Christian is not okay, he can't be, with wickedness, oppression, injustice being committed around him as long as he is going to heaven. That's escapism, not Christianity. Rather, the Christian hungers and thirsts for righteousness. And it shows in the way he views, loves, serves, prays for the world around him. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. And he, teach, he does not teach us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in me as it is in heaven. But rather, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, of course, the former, God's will being done in us, and us accomplishing God's will, as we read from the Heidelberg earlier, is included in the latter, in praying for the will of God to be done in the earth. But Christ, where did he make our eyes? I forget which Puritan it was that pointed this out about selfishness. He said that God made our eyes to face outward, not inward into our own mind, right? So our, when our concern is only about ourselves, how we feel, what's going to happen to us, what's going on in our own life, then we have curved in on ourselves. We've curved in on ourselves and we're no longer hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And we must repent. The Christian looks not only for his own interests, Paul says, but also for the interests of others, Philippians 2.4. The Christian is not selfish, but in lowliness of mind, he esteems others better than himself, Philippians 2.3. The Bible and the Beatitudes in particular know nothing of the Gnostic, pietistic, individualistic, self-centeredness that is so prominent in modern evangelicalism. The Bible just knows nothing of it. Rather, all throughout, we are exhorted and commanded to have a heart for the lost, for the dying, suffering, oppressed, and impoverished among us. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and having no regard for the evils of abortion, transgenderism, homosexuality, oppression, and injustice around us, are completely incompatible. Christians are blessed to be these new creations. Creations that feel a deep, constant, lasting hunger for Christ and his righteousness. For God to come in righteous judgment and set all things right. To restore the world the way it is supposed to be. And again, we are blessed as Christians in this aspect as well because we, even here, shall be filled. We hunger and thirst, and we shall be filled. Christ taught us, as I just said, to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Do you think Jesus would have taught us to pray that if it wasn't going to be answered? No. One day, all nations shall come streaming to Zion, into the church, to be taught God's word. One day the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth 
as the waters cover the sea. One day, the nations will beat their spears into pruning hooks. They'll have no use for weapons. One day, all of the kingdoms of this world will recognize and own Jesus as their Lord in faith and obedience. In the meantime, in the meantime, we must continue to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We must delight that we do hunger and thirst and ask God, oh God, that I would love righteousness more, that I would be more affected by the evils of this world and not be so desensitized to the things that are going on around me. I'm shocked at myself, and I'm sure you are as well. I'm shocked at myself sometimes by the things that don't bother me, and they really should. I'm just so used to it because of what's going on. That's not how it should be. These things should break our hearts as Christians. We should continue to hunger and to thirst for righteousness, to long for him to come in righteousness, praying for God to come in righteous judgment, to restore all things, asking that he would cause our hunger and our thirst to deepen and that we would walk in obedience to him in all things, big and small, in all things, both big and small. I've sometimes answered this question. I've heard others discuss this as well. With everything going on in the world, everything going on around us, what, what can I do? I feel like I can't do anything. Start in the small stuff. Be righteous. Love righteousness. Come to church. Love your families. Be a good employee. Be faithful where you are, even in the small things. That's how the kingdom shall come. And we have his promise that he shall satisfy our longing. So let us get to work. Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we again are thankful for this opportunity to open thy word, to hear it read, O God, to gather and worship as thy people. O Lord, please refresh us. We thank thee for the coming of Christ, for his righteous kingdom, O Lord. And Lord, we thank thee for giving us thy Holy Spirit, for starting a good work in us and giving us the promise that it shall be brought to completion, O Lord. Please help us to hate sin more, to love righteousness more, and to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ from sin. O God, we do pray that thy righteous rule would increase in this world, that thy will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.